So near the beginning of the life of this church, uh, I was called uh, late one night to East Surrey Hospital. Uh, one of our uh, members, one of our numbers, one of the ones that used to come here fairly regularly, um, she was an elderly lady um, and she was in East Surrey Hospital. Uh, she was frail and old and she was propped up uh, by a pillow. Um, and she was surrounded by family, so uh, her son, her daughter-in-law uh, and some grandchildren were there and they were uh, around her bed in East Surrey. And her face was pale. She was sort of moving in and out of consciousness. Um, and her breathing was slow and labored. And it was obvious it was her time to pass away. It was obvious that death was coming. It was obvious that her mortal frame was going to finally expire. And so we spoke in hushed tones with the family. There's, there's there's something big about death. I don't know if you think about it much, but there's something big about it. It's something that we all face and all have to look at and consider. And so we spoke in hushed tones uh, with the family. And then I began to read Psalm 23. It's kind of like the go-to passage uh, for these sort of occasions. And we just read through Psalm 23. And by the time I finished reading that psalm, her body had given up the fight. The soul, we believe, thankfully, had gone to be with her saviour Jesus, but her body was left behind. There was death in that body. It was a sombre moment. This person that they knew as mother, that they knew as mother-in-law, that they knew as grandmother, she was no longer in their lives. And it was a sombre moment, and it was an intimate one. It was one that was, I felt very honoured to be part of, to be invited into these last moments of someone's life, and to be with their family as they grappled with the death of someone that was so important in their lives. And so we cried, and we hugged each other, and we prayed, and then we left the dead body in the room. And then we all went through that process. And I imagine most of you have known that uh, uh, process in your life, that process of grieving, that process of co coping without that person in your lives, whether they're interfering or whether they're loving. You know that there's that gap in your life that they had to deal with. And we went through that. We would not see that person this side of the resurrection. When Jesus' followers saw Jesus cruelly executed on that cross, they knew what death meant. They weren't some sort of uh, fantasy-chasing group of men who were easily led. They knew what death meant. The women knew what death meant. They knew what to do when someone died. They knew that this man had been executed on a cross. He had been hung cruelly uh, by this Roman uh, method of execution. He had been pierced in the side. He had been tortured. There was no way his body was going to survive 
all of this. And so when his body was taken down, they knew what death meant and they started that process of grieving, starting going through that process of coping with that gap in their lives, the absence of someone that they loved so dearly. They had been through this process before and they knew it was coming with the passing of Jesus. It was a time to bury him, it was a time to mourn him, and it was a time to move on. Perhaps cope with some of the disappointments that they thought this Jesus was going to uh, reconcile. It was a brutal but familiar pattern and they knew what to do. And so it was a little bit of a shock when the two Marys and Joanna rocked up to the tomb to embalm the body to find that their tomb, which was sealed and had Roman soldiers in front, had kind of been desecrated, that there had been movement in this thing, that there should be no movement. When you go up to uh, uh, the various cemeteries in Crawley, you expect things to stay the same when you've left them. You don't expect to find movement because there's dead bodies and dead bodies don't move. Well, this tomb was very different. This massive stone that had been put there to stop grave robbers and excited religious people making fantastical claims, it had been rolled back and the tomb which should have had a rotten corpse in it, it was empty. This had not happened before. A dead body was not where it had been left, and that was a surprise. And thankfully, in the account that Marion read out, we have these messengers. You know, they bring a little bit of context. They say, right, okay, this is not as you expect, but let me tell you, Jesus tried to hint to you that this is what was going to happen. In this new tomb, in the bleakness of its purpose... We have this announcement, we have this glorious announcement, and these ladies suddenly have this new feeling. They had been mourning and despair and sorrow and grief, and suddenly these angels say, well, perhaps it's something new. And the text doesn't say the ladies believe the word of the angels, it says something different. Luke tells us, Dr. Luke, this fastidious recorder of the life of Jesus, tells us that these women who had spent three years with Jesus, following him, listening to him, uh, absorbing his teaching and his wisdom, they had seen his miracles and listened to his words. And the text says they remembered his teaching. Jesus had said this was going to happen. They hadn't appreciated the importance of it, but he'd said they're going to happen. And more than this, they uh, remembered all the different ways that he said the Old Testament was going to forecast what was coming. Now there is an old French mathematician called Pascal and uh, he 
wrote down a load of thoughts about Jesus and, and uh, they're recorded in something called the His Penses. And there's some beautiful words that he wrote. And one of the things he wrote was this. The most weighty proofs of Jesus are the prophecies. It is for them that God made most provisions. For the event which fulfilled them is a miracle. Continuing from the birth of the church to the end, God raised up prophets for 1,600 years. And that's the length of the Old Testament, and it's full of these prophecies. And for 400 years afterwards, dispersed all the prophecies with the Jews. And the Jews carried these prophecies into every corner of the world. Such was the preparation for the birth of Christ. And since his gospel had to be believed by the whole world, there not only had to be prophecies to make men believe it, but these prophecies had to be spread throughout the world so that the whole world should embrace it. And Pascal is telling us all these Old Testament prophecies are incredible evidence that Jesus is not just someone who woke up in the coolness of the tomb and said, oh, it wasn't that bad. It was something much more uh, important and monumental. And Jesus, for his three years of ministry, had been preparing all the people that followed him. I'm going to die and rise again. But they didn't really hear it until he died and rose again. And these ladies suddenly start to absorb it, suddenly start to go, oh, this is what he was talking about. And so the ladies stop bothering hunting for Jesus' body. I love it. They just, I, we don't need to find it because we're not going to. That was a fool's errand. Instead, they rush to tell their men. They rush to tell the disciples and those that had also been close to Jesus this wonderful good news. And so this morning, Mary and Mary and Joanna, they invite each of us to intelligently consider the words. This account, the other three accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection, he, he invite us to um, look at the actions of Jesus and the miracle of this empty tomb that Christians have been celebrating and dancing around for 2,000 years. These words are plainly and gloriously recorded in not just one gospel, not two, not three, but four separate gospels. We have this glorious story of the most amazing man that has ever lived. And he climaxes his life by dying awfully and then being victorious over it. And I asked these ladies to read it out this morning because it is the most compelling word you'll ever read. We can sing about it and you can have a preacher talk about it, but it is so good to go back to this eyewitness source and say this is what happened. We are not just believing uh, invented tales to thrill the soul, but a factual account of the most mystical momentous, miraculous moment in human history. And so I invite you today, read them again. 
Read each of the accounts and be impressed again by uh, the glory in them, the wonder, the mystery. Enjoy them. Be convinced again of this risen Lord. This is not just another religious calendar moment to tick off. There is a richness and detail and a factual aspect to them that is just marvellous to take in. I was speaking to a guy recently about his faith and he was identified himself as a Christian, but when you prodded and asked, it was very unclear what more it meant than he'd inherited it from uh, family. True faith isn't that. True religion isn't what you've inherited from your parents. It isn't just a matter of feeling. We sing nice songs sometimes and you can feel uplifted if Tim gets the chords right and the singers think it can sometimes listen to voice, but that isn't true religion. That's emotionalism. And it isn't just what someone else argues for. When you say, well, what do you believe? And go, well, better ask Kevin or uh, let me give you this book. It should be understood in your hearts. When we invite people to get baptised, we need to know that they have a clear idea of their faith in their minds. That they can tell you why they want to get baptised and why it is an important aspect of their faith. Your religion, your faith, should be a clearly held set of beliefs. You should be able to articulate what you believe. It should be things that you have assembled and pointed to that cause things to be right and wrong. We live in a world full of faiths and religions and we certainly love the fact that you don't get uh, uh, persecuted for however uh, you think, but our faiths mean that all the other ones are wrong. We don't agree with them. We can't rub along shoulders with them and we can't worship them. We have claims about Jesus that are exclusive and discount every other Messiah, every other prophet and every other person that sets himself up as a speaker of God's will. And so we need to know what we know. We need to make sense of scripture and pull out the bits that are important. And more than this, what we believe needs to make sense in the beauties and iridescent heights of life. So whether that's your team winning the Premier League, the birth of your first child, or something else glorious, and it needs to make sense in that moment, and in the lowest of the lows, when you are facing death, when you are sitting by your parent who is about to pass away, or when you are suffering with the prospective death of your child. Your faith and your understanding of religion needs to make sense of all of that. And if it doesn't, you are going to be in trouble. And when something happens, good or bad, you are going to leave it behind because it is not comprehensive. Do you know the teachings that we find in Scripture? Do you know the teachings Jesus said about himself? 
Have we let the words of scripture determine our expectations of how to behave in life and how to uh, um, conduct ourselves? Do we know why Jesus had to die? Do we know why it was inevitable that he was going to rise again and that he would lead those uh, who trusted in him in his wake in victory? Let me invite you, stop looking for his body. Look at the truth. Understand it and take it in. And so those are the women. Next you have Cleopas and another unnamed disciple. And we find on this road to Emmaus, uh, seven miles away from Jerusalem, we have two men travelling and it's on the same resurrection day. They'd heard the stories from their women and they thought it was nonsense, but they were still arguing about it. And they were wrecked with all sorts of sorrow and unclear uh, ideas of what was going to happen next. They loved Jesus, but he seemed to have been executed by the Romans and been buried, and suddenly everything that he said was going to happen seemed to flounder. And as they are furiously debating it, they get a new traveller that comes along with them. And the traveller inserts himself into their journey, into their conversation. And it is one of the most remarkable moments when these guys are asking don't you know what has happened Jesus knows very well but it is a moment and opportunity for faith and so Cleopas and his mate explain what has happened but Jesus knows because he was there and then he returns and then he replies and then he says you only know so much. You don't know the full story. You have stopped at the best bit. And then we get what I imagine was the greatest Bible uh, study ever. When Jesus opens up 1,600 years of prophecies in the Old Testament and goes, look, there I am, there I am, here it is. The resurrection's promised here. Don't you see that? Don't you remember that? And suddenly this Old Testament book, which, to be honest, some of us probably avoid, which some of us find a little bit old and stuffy and confusing and uh, things, Jesus goes, I'm all through that. I'm there all over it. And then let me tell you about my own words and how I was always destined to come back. And so we get this greatest Bible study ever. And Cleopas and his mate are impressed, okay? They're not convinced. They don't suddenly worship Jesus, but they're, but they're impressed. that This guy obviously knows his stuff. Um, and the women would have obviously sort of immediately realised who Jesus was, worshipped him and, and done other, but these guys are a little bit stubborn, a little bit uh, uh, hard-headed and not really ready to make that leap. And so they go, well, you make a good point. How about you come and eat with us? And so the knowledgeable stranger goes to eat with us. And then Jesus says grace over food. We have this moment that any disciple of Jesus would have been familiar with. Jesus giving thanks for food. He did it before the feeding of the 5,000. He did it at the Last Supper. Again and again, Jesus gave thanks for the food. Remembered that his father was the generous benefactor of all that they enjoy. And then the clear paths and his mate go, oh, you're G, and he disappears. And they had all that time to enjoy his company, but he disappears the moment recognition comes. 
These guys knew the scriptures. These guys had followed Jesus. These guys walked with the resurrected Jesus for miles and miles, but they had murky minds. And do you know what? That is a characteristic that we all share. We have fuzzy thinking. We get persuaded one way or another by our emotions, by our situations, even by our health sometimes. We have these bodies that seem to distort things so often. Well, this is true for these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it can be true of us too. We can be full of experience and knowledge. We can be well-versed in literature, in life experiences, and documentaries, and even qualifications. We can be the cleverest of people, but we can have a lethargy in recognising where God is. We can have a slowness to perceive where he is at work. The only way that we can move from facts to faith is being humble and recognising that we need help. By holding up our hands in surrender and saying, you know what, I've got this inner longing to know you, God, but you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to move things along. And there is this desperate dad in one of uh, the uh, stories of Jesus where he goes, help me overcome my unbelief. And that is true of us, of every single person on the face of the planet. We need help to see who Jesus is. And Pascal says this. Um, it's got some absolutely fantastic quotes. And it says this. If I had seen a miracle, they say, I should be converted. How many times have you heard that? How can they be positive that they would do what they know nothing about? They imagine that such a conversion consists in a worship of God conducted as they picture it like some sort of exchange or conversation. True conversion consists in self-denial before this universal being who we have so often frustrated. He is perfectly entitled to destroy us, his creatures, at any moment. In recognising that we can do nothing without him and that we have deserved nothing but disfavour, it consists in knowing that there is an irreconcilable opposition between God and us. This hard-headedness, this murky thinking, and without a mediator, there can be no exchange. Do not be astonished to see simple people believing without argument. God makes them love him and hate themselves. He inclines their hearts to believe. We shall never believe with an effective belief and faith unless God touches our hearts and we shall believe as soon as he does. And that is what David knew very well when he said, incline my heart unto thy testimonies. We need the touch of God to believe. The facts are there, but we need that help to really understand who Jesus is. And the final act of Luke's account in chapter 24. We find the disciples again arguing. 
Christians are so good at arguing. We can find the smallest, tiniest issue and uh, uh, make it the biggest thing and come to loggerheads over it. Well, sure enough, those first disciples were no different. As with Cleopas, Jesus suddenly comes into the scene. These disciples are uh, uh, in this room and he comes in without an invite or fireworks and the disciples finally get to see Jesus, the resurrected Lord, in front of them. But they know that he was a dead man, that he'd hung on a cross and been taken down dead. And so they are suspicious, so they are wary, and so they think, he, they assume he's some sort of apparition or ghost. And then Jesus overcomes all that, but says, just touch this body of mine. Just let me eat in front of you and you will see me as I devour this fish, that I am a resurrected person. And his physical resurrection was undeniable. And then he had a moment to teach. What? It's going to be the first words of this resurrected teacher. What are going to be the first words of this resurrected Lord, of this first person to have come back to life? Well, Jesus says it's long promised, this resurrection. I've talked about it, and the prophets of 1,600 years in the Old Testament have talked about it too. And now we're going to find out the significance and importance of resurrection. It's one thing to know Jesus has come back, but it's a whole other thing to know the reason for it, for why nature was brutally reversed so that Jesus could come back to life. Jesus was not, uh, his resurrection was not just another miracle to add to all the other ones that he had done. This one changes the present and the future for everyone that put their trust in him. Everyone who has ever lived at one point or other has rejected God. Every single one of us have done our own thing, have uh, gone against the conscience inside and gone against either the laws of the land or the laws that we know are good and right. Each of us has done our own thing. Each of us has been selfish at one point or other. We fight, we lie, we cheat, we hate and we envy. Even Christians sometimes now and again, do those things. But, and this, the Bible says, is unrighteousness. This is sinfulness. This is fallenness. Whatever you want to call it, rebelliousness. It means we can't stand before a holy God. And it is the whole problem that the Bible sets to resolve. We cannot stand before a holy God because we are unholy. And we are deliberate and intentional on that and do it every single day. We cannot enjoy the benevolence of our beautiful king because we reject him again and again. Each of us, without a mediator as Pascal put it, each of us is destined to be separated from God forever because of our own actions and attitudes. And this separation is no small thing. It is not something to joke about how all the best people are going to be in hell and that's where I want to be. Hell is going to be the greatest pain 
you'll ever experience. Hell is the worst loneliness that you could possibly imagine. Hell is the worst helplessness that you will ever know. Hell is the darkest place that you can imagine where the blackness is impenetrable and brings only despair. Without God, that is what we're destined for. And each of us deserves that. And that is the whole point of Scripture. And the whole point of Jesus is to say, God doesn't want this for you. Jesus died a death he didn't deserve so that he could be the substitute for that eternal death that each of us deserves. It is a hard truth to swallow, to be humble and say, yes, I need help. Yes, I can't do it on my own. Yes, I see these facts before me and they make sense in my soul. But when God gives us the uh, eyes of faith, we can accept Jesus as our saviour and then suddenly everything changes. Suddenly it is the greatest day in history. Suddenly it is a happy people we become. Suddenly it is a drama where we're forgiven. Suddenly it is uh, a place where we're strengthened and boldened and ready to take on life. Suddenly we can look for life beyond the grave. When your dry, desiccated body is laid to rest, whether at the crematorium or in the cemetery, what happens next? Scripture details an option. And believers and followers of Jesus have seen the truth in it for 2,000 years and followed Jesus accordingly. And suddenly, God is not just oppressive judge who we fear and try and block out of our minds he becomes heavenly father we can pray to and enjoy and invite in more in our lives the faith the relief the joy the hope and the love this is what it means to be born again and it's unequal in all the world and it's why Pascal says Christians are the happiest of them all. Because we have a truth that will never fade away. That whether we become billionaires or paupers, whether we get cancer and die soon or live a long life, we have a faith that will see us through all those points. This gospel is so good news. And it is so universally applicable. Anyone can take it. It's been spreading ever since. This is 2,000 years later after Jesus died and rose again. And still his story is being retold. Still his story is the biggest of all the world religions. And we are 3,000 miles from Jerusalem. And still we can repeat it and enjoy it. It is no accident of history that we follow Jesus right here and right now. Let me read this last bit from Pascal and we'll close. Some great words. Very intelligent mathematician. You'll probably, if you uh, sort of been to secondary school, you'll have been exposed to various uh, of his thinking and, and ways of looking at sort of trigonometry and stuff. And it goes on. 
I marvel at an original and august religion, wholly divine in its authority, longevity, its perpetuity, its morality, its conduct, its doctrine, its effects. Thus, I stretch out my arms to my Saviour, who after being foretold for 4,000 years, came on earth to die and suffer for me at the time and in circumstances foretold. By his grace, I peaceably await death. wonder how many of you feel like that. You're relaxed about death. It's okay to die. It's not something to uh, worry about and fear at every part. Death has no fear for those that love Jesus. I peaceably await death in the hope of being eternally united to him. Paul says, to die is gain. It's going to be better for me to die because then I get to be with my saviour. And Pascal goes on, meanwhile I live joyfully, whether in the blessings which he is pleased to bestow on me or in the afflictions he sends to my own good and taught me how to endure by his Example. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I pray for each of us. Lord God, I pray that we would know Scripture, that we would relish its details, and that it would have an obvious and clear effect on our heart and mind. Lord God, we pray. Holy Spirit, that you would touch our hearts so that we move from just being factually aware of these things to uh, believers, to being born again, to being faith-filled followers. And Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that as you transform our lives by this salvation, that we would, like those first disciples, go on and tell this good news to everyone around us. Lord God, I thank you that it is the greatest news in history. And uh, Lord God, this is the greatest day. Heavenly Father, just pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen, Amen.